You're listening to audio from Northway Church. For more information about Northway and additional resources, please visit northwaychurch.com. Northway Church, so good to be with you today. My name is Brady Goodwin, one of the pastors here. As we begin, I want to tell you how much I miss you how much I long to see you. It's been uh, just about four months since we have been shut down in our services, and one of the biggest pain points for me personally is not being able to see your faces on a regular, every day or every week basis. And I want you to know that your pastors, your staff, we, we love you, we are praying for you, we are eager for the day when we can be back together again. And, um, and we love you. And I just want, I want to begin with that as we um, start our time together today. We're continuing uh, in our Psalm series today. We're going to be looking at Psalm 103. And so if you've got your Bible with you, turn to Psalm 103. As you're turning there, let me tell you a little bit about what this Psalm is. This is a Psalm of David, an extremely well-known Psalm. It is a Psalm uh, that is a personal hymn of praise. It is David declaring the glory of God, his praise of God, uh, his adoration of who God is, his character and what he's done. And this Psalm is timely for us today for three reasons. It's timely for three reasons. The first is this, we can't help but praise what we love. This happens um, anytime we speak of something we delight in, what we speak of most, what we praise, it almost always represents the true love of our hearts. In the same way, when we criticize something, that actually reveals something of what we value. It's the contrasting image. It's the photo negative of the things that we cherish. Second, This praise, this innate human response either reflects a type of health or a type of disorder. Health in the sense that when we praise, sometimes we can give wide appreciation for many things. We can enjoy uh, many things born out of a spirit of humility and gratitude. And this overflows and is actually attractive uh, to other people. It invites people in, come taste this thing, look at this thing, see the beauty of this thing. But we can also praise in a spirit of disorder. We can elevate something to the highest pinnacle and actually walk in a kind of elitism that excludes rather than invites other people. C.S. Lewis uh, wrote a, a really helpful book about the Psalms called Reflection on the Psalms. And writing about this spirit of praise, he says this regarding uh, what we've just said, a a response of health or a response of disorder. Listen to what C.S. Lewis has said. He says, the world rings with praise. Lovers praising their mistresses, readers their favorite poet, walkers praising the countryside, players praising their favorite game, praise of weather, wines, dishes, Actors, motors, horses, colleges, countries, historical personages, children, flowers, mountains, rare stamps, rare beetles. I'm not sure if we're doing that today still. Even sometimes politicians or scholars. I had not noticed how the humblest and at the same time most balanced and capacious minds praised most, while the cranks, misfits, and malcontents praised least. The good critics found something to praise in many imperfect works. The bad ones continually narrowed the list of books we might be allowed to read. The healthy and unaffected man, even if luxuriously brought up and widely experienced in good cookery, could praise a very modest meal. The dyspeptic and the snob found fault with all. 
except where intolerably adverse circumstances interfere, praise almost seems to be inner health made audible. And so we have our, uh, our, our praise of what we love most. We have praise as either health or disorder. And then the third reason that this psalm is timely for us today, that our praise terminates either on God or ourselves. Even healthy praise is going to drift towards ourself if it is undocked from God as our anchor. Uh, last week, Hamilton came out on Disney+. Plus. I have been listening to that musical for several years, love getting to see it in person, love getting to watch it on uh, a streaming device, but it's very easy for my praise of some piece of art like that to become elevated uh, and actually terminate on something else besides the God who has created artistic expression. Uh, I love to go fly fishing. It's really easy for me to get focused on catching a fish rather than praising the God who has created such beauty and wonder and invited me to participate in it. And I can also do the same thing with food as I imagine you can as well. But even disordered praise that focuses on God or one of his attributes can actually be self-centered and exclusionary as well. Think about finer points of doctrine, how we tend to erect fences around what we believe when it differs from someone else and we actually exclude others when God does not exclude them on the same basis. Um, maybe it's theological learnedness. Maybe it's the degree to which a person understands the scriptures that we actually create a type of exclusion and a lack of invitation in our praise. But what this Psalm is going to teach us today is that if we are to live as God intends, our praise must be rightly ordered and rightly expressed. It must reflect the humility of wide appreciation, but also the centrality of God's glory, all the while inviting others to join in so that they too might experience true fellowship and enjoyment of God. Psalm 103 offers us then both a model of such praise as well as an invitation to pursue it. And here's what we're gonna see when we look at this Psalm together today. First is the what. What is it that takes place? There is a declaration of God's praise in this Psalm that we are to see and that we are to uh, pursue as our model. Second, the why. There is an invocation of God's grace. There is a justification that explains, here's why you must do this. Here's why your praise must look this way. And then third, there is the what now. There is an invitation that's given to God's servants. There's a declaration of God's glory, an invocation of God's grace, and an invitation to God's servants. So look with me starting in verse one of Psalm 103 as we think about this declaration of God's praise. Look at verse one. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless his holy name. This psalm starts off with an exhortation, bless, which is very similar uh, in many translations, even translated as praise, which just simply means to honor verbally in a spirit of praise and exaltation. It is inward devotion that is overflowing into external praise. Who is it that we are called to bless and to praise? It is the Lord God, the God who creates and keeps covenant with his people, the personal God that we can know, Father, Son, and Spirit. Notice how David says this though. It's a personal exhortation given to himself. Bless the Lord, O my soul, 
and all that is within me. It is all of who we are. It is all of us from the inside out, everything that we have, praising the God, praising the God who has rescued us and saved us um, through Jesus Christ. And then the end of verse one, bless his holy name. What is it that we're praising? We're praising God's holiness. This is actually a mark of maturity. If we look at our own hearts and we look at the ways that we tend to minimize sin, we look at the ways that we tend to deflect responsibility, God's holiness becomes an offense. But it is a beautiful thing for those who see their hearts clearly, who understand their true need, which is why David says what he does. He says, bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless his holy name. Look at verse two. There's a repetition, a reiteration of this content of praise. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not his benefits. This, rep this repetition denotes a type of emphasis urgency, necessity. We need to praise. We need to bless God, to rightly relate to him, to enjoy him for who he is. In the same, uh, in the same work, Reflections on the Psalms, C.S. Lewis said it in this way, that to fully enjoy is to glorify. In commanding us to glorify him, God is inviting us to enjoy him. When we praise God in this way, when we bless his holy name, when we forget not his benefits, this kind of praise protects us against one of the primary threats in our relationship to God, that we would fail to remember who he is and what he has done. And this actually brings us back to our introduction and provides us a fourth reason why this Psalm is so timely for us today. First was that we praise what we love. Second, that we praise in either healthy or disordered ways. Third is that our praise either terminates on God or ourselves. But fourth, and this is the real uh, kicker for us, is that we do not naturally praise the God we were created to worship and obey. We don't praise him on our own strength. We cannot do this without his help. And that's exactly what this Psalm acknowledges because to forget in this sense is not just passive negligence, but as the commentator Alan Ross describes it, it is actually the deliberate act of ignoring God's goodness and disobeying his will. It is the deliberate act of ignoring God's goodness and disobeying his will. This innate rebellious instinct is why David then proceeds to list God's benefits, to say what he has done and what we are to labor to remember. Look with me at verses three through five. Starting in verse two, bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you, with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. The works of God listed in these verses flow from a foundation. They flow from a foundation, but then they proceed in a successive order. First and most significant is forgiveness. You may be thinking, I've heard that term a bunch. I understand a little bit of what that means, but how would we define this? Forgiveness, to borrow from a definition from Robert Jones, uh, a, a counselor and pastor, is this, God's decision, declaration, and promise to those who believe in Jesus Christ to not hold our sins against us because of Jesus Christ. It is God's decision, declaration, and promise 
to those who believe in Jesus Christ to not hold our sins against us because of Jesus Christ. So that when we read in verse five that God forgives, it is this really profound declaration of the present ongoing work of forgiveness in our lives. For those who trust in Christ, God has forgiven past sin, but he's also forgiving present sin. It's a participle, this, uh, this verb in verse three, that describes present ongoing action. God who forgives, he is forgiving. He forgives present sin, but also the promise that he will forgive future sin all because of and on the basis of the work of Jesus Christ, his perfect life, his sacrificial death on the cross, his victorious resurrection, his ascension to the right hand of the Father and the promise of his return. But what is it that he forgives? He forgives all your iniquity. There is no sin that exhausts Jesus' ability to forgive. And what I know to be true about many of us is that there are some of us who are holding on to certain sins in our life, wrongly believing that those are outside of the scope of God's forgiveness. We may even admit that God is forgiving those sins, but that we somehow have to forgive ourselves. Either perspective is rooted in unbelief. Either perspective disregards the very words of God. God forgives all your iniquity. He will forgive all your sin in Jesus Christ. This shows us the way that it's listed first, the breadth of its expression is that forgiveness is our deepest need before God. There is no need that we have before God that is greater than forgiveness for sin. If we are without forgiveness, we are without access to God. If we are for, without forgiveness, we are without hope for the benefits that follow, the next things that he describes, which is the second healing who heals all your diseases. This describes God's ability to cure, to rebuild, to refresh. And it helps us to see a second foundational truth beyond forgiveness is that we need healing. Sin has fractured not only our hearts, but also our world. We suffer spiritual death and we face physical death. We fight these two great trials now of sin and suffering, of our failures and our miseries. By God's grace, he heals us in the two areas where we need it the most, spiritually and physically. Spiritually, we experience forgiveness that leads to healing in our hearts. Our sins are forgiven and by faith, both the wounds that our sin creates and the very sinfulness of our hearts begins to be healed. It's a process known as sanctification. It's a process that begins at salvation, but is something that takes place all throughout our life as believers and is completed only when we are with Jesus in death or when he returns. But physically, God also heals us through bodily diseases by his very power. In a similar manner, this may occur in this life or it will occur when we are united with Jesus through death as we await the hope of our resurrection. But either way, we will be healed. God heals our diseases. Third is resurrection. First, forgiveness. Second, healing. What is the third benefit? It's resurrection. Verse four, God redeems our life from the pit. He redeems us from the curse of the grave. Um, in your translation, you see the pit. 
which most likely refers to the grave or the Old Testament concept of Sheol, which describes the Jewish conception of the afterlife, which almost always had to do with the reality of God's judgment in death. And so when we read this now that God redeems our life from the pit, that God will redeem us means that we will not experience his judgment for sin because of what he has done in Jesus Christ. Instead, just as Jesus was resurrected bodily from the dead to a glorified life, so too will all who trust in him by faith. His resurrection purchased our justification and our justification will be proven at the resurrection. Fourth, there is exaltation, the fourth benefit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy. God crowns us with his love and with his compassion. It is his love that does not depend upon us, but is the reflection of his very character, his covenantal unending love. And it is his compassion that flows from his identity as the God of all comfort, which just means for us today that God looks at us with compassion and mercy and love, and that love does not end. Fifth, and finally from this first section is satisfaction. God fills our hearts through his renewing and refreshing grace. Verse five, who satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. Here's what this means. We can be satisfied today through the grace of God in all the good things that he's given us. We get to experience the benefit of forgiveness and a reconciled relationship with God. We get to experience the first fruits of healing in our hearts and in our bodies as we await the resurrection. We see the profound hope that comes when we look at the resurrection of Jesus and see what awaits us. We experience today through a new identity, the type of exaltation that will be made complete when we are with him in glory. And we get to experience the satisfaction of a heart that is at peace because of the justifying work of God in Christ. But we will be satisfied when we are in eternity with him. We will be free of every hindrance that we face today. There are struggles that you are experiencing today that you're experiencing today and you will not ever experience again when you are with Jesus face to face. Can you imagine that? Your anxiety, your depression, your lust, your anger. There's gonna be a day where you never feel those things again. And I don't know about you, but I cannot wait for that day to be here. And so what does this praise look like? We've looked at the first five verses. We've seen a declaration of praise. We've seen reasons why David praises God. But what does this praise look like in the life of the believer? And I think it comes down to three things. The first is the declaration of the glory of God, that when we praise and we lift our voice in service to the Lord, we are saying, this is who our God is. This is the Lord. This is his glory, his character, his majesty. But it also looks like a proclamation. This is what he's done. It's why every time when we gather as a body to worship, we lift up the name of Jesus, but we also describe what has Jesus done for us. This is what he's done. This is his work. And in the celebration, this is our life in him. This is who we are because of the surpassing grace of God and all that he has accomplished through Christ. Yet as we continue looking at this Psalm, we will see that because God understands that we are going to struggle with this, 
We're going to struggle with actually seeing this take place. We're going to have difficulty praising the God of all grace because it is in our hearts to rebel against this. It is in our hearts to turn away. God knows this. And in verses six through 19, he gives us even greater justification for what this declaration of praise is to look like. If verses one through five represent the what of true praise, verses six through 19 show us the why. David invokes God's grace and he comments further on the character of God and the cause of true praise. So look with me starting in verse six. We're gonna read verses six through 13. And we'll say a little bit about this part. Verse six, the Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the people of Israel. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. And as a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. The effect of this section really is in many ways to bowl us over with the character and glory of God and his love for his people. Doesn't it drive you to praise when you consider God's character and his works? Think with me over these, tech, uh, over these section again. Verse six, God always does what is right. And even more, he delights in undoing what is wrong. The Lord works righteousness. He always brings justice for the oppressed. And this is demonstrated both in history and in our lives today, which is why David says he made known his ways to Moses and his acts to the people of Israel. God is merciful. He looks upon us with compassion. God is gracious. He does not give us what we deserve. He is slow to anger. He is abounding in steadfast love. Verse nine, God is patient with us. He's overflowing with covenantal love. He does not respond to us the way that uh, humans do in judgment. He responds to us in altogether unique and glorious ways as, as gracious and loving. He doesn't cancel us if we do wrong, but he responds with forgiveness. He, he doesn't deal with us according to our sins. He's never punitive in his judgment, but he always seeks restoration. He is never punitive in his judgment. He always desires the restoration of his people. His love extends beyond the heights of what we can even know. It's hard for us to even grasp a comparison in verse 11, for as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. We don't even have a category to understand what that feels like. We can only begin to get a glimpse. His love for you is greater than the heavens. Your sin is as far removed from you as anything you can see, as far as the east is from the west. His forgiveness goes to the very depths of all creation. And then in verse 13, I love this image. He is our perfect father. 
He shows compassion. He is full of compassion towards those who trust him. I love the way the Psalms are filled with this kind of imagery, this parental love. Um, Psalm 131 says something similar. When we are described as those who sit in the lap of our parent, of of our mother as a child who is content, who is given everything that he needs, this is the relationship of God to his people. And it should drive us to just go, enough, I've had enough. I can't help but praise you. Glory to your name. Let me give you the honor and the praise. But now look at verses 14 through 19. God is full of glory, but you and I are weak. Yet in this weakness, there is understanding, there is grace, and there is the commitment of God. And all of it is grounded on the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus. Look at verses 14 through 19. For he knows our frame. This could also be translated, he knows how we are formed because he formed us. He knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. As for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field for the wind passes over it and it is gone and, it, and its place knows it no more. We're temporary, we're fleeting, we're weak. We are going to pass through this life. But the contrast, verse 17, the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him and his righteousness to children's children, to those who keep his covenant and remember to do his commandments. The Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his kingdom rules over all. We read these five verses, these six verses, and we step back and we say, how can we not respond with humility and repentance when we consider the love of God in response to our weakness? How can we not respond with a spirit of praise and exaltation? Because though we were weak, he is strong. Though we turn our hearts away from him, he is gracious to us, forgiving us through Jesus Christ. He formed us. He knows that we will struggle. He knows that we are weak. He knows that we are utterly temporary on this earth. And yet his love, his covenantal love is eternal. It never ends. It never stops. It never gives up for those who fear him. Look at verses 17 and 18. You might be thinking, but what about this? Verse 17 says that the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him. Verse 18, to those who keep his covenant. Isn't that a type of legalism? Isn't that a type of condition that goes counter to the spirit of the gospel? Not at all. It makes no sense for a person to love someone or to be loved by them, to not then delight in serving them and praising them and in glorifying them. It is a logical inconsistency that we would on the one hand spurn the love of God in Christ, the message of the glory of the gospel, and then somehow expect to receive the benefits of God. We receive the benefits of God in response to our faith in the work of Christ. He gives us every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, according to Ephesians 1.3. And so we glorify what we love. If we bless God with all we are, we will then seek to follow him with all that we have. And when we struggle to praise him in this way, it is the 
natural reality of the remaining unbelief and sin that exists in our hearts, but because God knows our frame, because he knows that we, are ten, uh, that we will tend towards rebellion, there is unending grace and love as we turn to him in repentance through faith in Jesus Christ. There's unending grace. There's unending love. There's unending mercy. There's unending forgiveness. And that we would submit our hearts to God in this way is seen all the more when we look at verse 19. The Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his kingdom rules over all. So we stand before God and we say, he is the Lord. And we bless him as such. We stand before him and say, he is our king. And we honor him as such. And we stand before his world and we say, his is the kingdom. And we live before him in this reality. And so what we've seen to this point is this declaration of God's praise, the what, the, the, the what that the people of God are called to. We've then seen in verses six through 19, this why, why this must be so, this invocation of God's grace. And now we will look at the, the, the invitation that comes to God's servants, the what now of our response. Look at verse 20. As David concludes this extended meditation on praise and the character of God, he invites others to join him in the same pursuit. What began as a personal hymn of praise now becomes corporate. Verse 20, bless the Lord, O you his angels, you mighty ones who do his word, obeying the voice of his word. Bless the Lord, all his hosts, his ministers who do his will. Bless the Lord, all his works in all places of his dominion. Bless the Lord, O my soul. In these three verses, David is addressing angelic beings and all creation, and he's inviting them to join him in the same chorus of praise that he has begun himself. This is what healthy God-honoring praise does. It invites other people in. It says, come and look at the God who has rescued me, the God who has saved me. See his beauty, glory in his name together. Listen to the way that C.S. Lewis in Reflections on the Psalms, um, the way he describes this kind of praise. He says that I had not noticed that just as men spontaneously praise whatever they value, so too they spontaneously urge us to join them in praising it. Isn't she lovely? Wasn't it glorious? Don't you think that magnificent? The psalmist is telling, as the psalmist tells everyone to praise God, he is doing what all men do when they speak of what they care about. He's inviting us in to the same proclamation, the same exaltation, the same spirit of praise that is to mark the life of every believer in Jesus Christ. The big picture of this Psalm, the big main idea of this Psalm is that we are to praise the Lord with all we have and with all we are. So how do we do this? In this season, this Psalm may land on you in different ways. As I said at the beginning, it's been four months since we've been able to gather together and sing with one voice in praise to our God. And I don't know about you, I'm a little worn out of watching videos of sermons and singing songs at home. I am so thankful that we get to do this, but it is no substitute to actually being together and worshiping God with a shared voice. And so we probably have muscles that are weak in this area right now. And so I want you to think about with me how we can continue to develop increasing maturity in our praise, in our blessing, and in our adoration of God. 
What are some of the things we can do while we are still in this season of not being able to be together and gather? And so let's, start about, let's talk about our foundation. First and foremost is our own trust in Jesus Christ, our own reliance and belief in the gospel, our own uh, relishing and enjoyment of the forgiving grace of God. This is the first stone that must be laid. This is the cornerstone of Christ in our lives. It says, before anything else, let me see the majesty and mercy of my God through the forgiveness of Jesus Christ. This needs to overflow into a daily, if not hourly pursuit of repentance and fleeing sin. One of the things that this season has likely produced in many of our lives is increased isolation. We're not seeing the same people we normally see. Maybe we're seeing folks now, we started getting to the, back to the place where we could spend more time together and now we're walking that back a little bit. But if you're like me, you just, you aren't seeing the same people. There isn't the same kind of accountability structures. And so we have to be all the more diligent to pursue a lifestyle of repentance and of fleeing for sin. We are not called to toy with sin. We are called to flee from it. And if we flee from it, our ability to praise the God of grace grows all the more. If we um, move further towards sin, we will not praise God. We will not give our hearts to him. Third is prayer, right along with this, the dependence of God through prayer, dependence on the Lord through prayer. Fourth, um, personal or family worship. Even though we cannot be together in the same ways, we have the opportunity to spend time together as individuals, as uh, households, as roommates, as families, to spend time worshiping God and lifting up the name of Jesus, to look at the word of God, to sing songs and praise to God. We have the opportunity to do so in a way that helps us strengthen our ability to praise the Lord together. We have the privilege of enjoying that which honors God of being in his creation, of being with his image bearers and celebrating the goodness of God in the world around us. And in the same way, we have the responsibility to pursue the rejection of that which dishonors God. Just as we may not be around other people as much, we may be given to things that we would not normally be pursuing in this season. More media, more um, influences in our lives that take us away from the beauty and the majesty of the gospel. Fifth, and we talked about this way back at the beginning of our shutdown, we have the opportunity to care for others, to minister to others in our lives, all so that we would praise and honor God more and more. And as we do this, there's a type of cyclical process that should be playing out. We should be examining our hearts, looking at the foundation of the gospel, walking daily by faith as we journey along this process of change. All of this is part of the application that helps to further this spirit of praise in our lives so that as we see the declaration of God's glory, we see the invocation of God's grace, we see the invitation to God's servant, we can join in and participate along just as the word of God would direct us. All of this means ultimately centering our gaze on the person and work of Christ. We don't get to this place without the forgiveness of Jesus. We don't get to this place without turning from our sin and looking to him by, for his salvation that comes by faith. That's all because of his grace. Without that, we, we can do none of the things that we're talking about today. 
And so what I hope you would take away from this is that we have an opportunity to join David in declaring God's praise. We have an opportunity to rejoice at the grace of God. And we have the opportunity to invite other people in, to praise God together wherever we are in this season, knowing that he hears, he hears our cries, he hears our prayers, he delights in the praise of his people, and he will sustain us as we seek to do so more and more. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this word. We thank you for the sufficiency of your word, the supremacy of the gospel. And we pray that as we um, reflect upon your work in our hearts, that you would equip us to praise your name. Lord, we, we lift your name up. We praise you. We give you the glory. And we pray that you would help us to do so more and more, that we would make it our aim to please you, that we would make it our aim to delight in you, to glory in you, all because of what you have accomplished through Jesus Christ. And so we give you the praise, the honor, and the glory today. And we ask in Jesus' name, amen.